Technobiotic. Look, I'll just strip it down to the basics. When I went to write a book about experience design, one of the things that you should know is what does experience mean? And so I spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to come to a common definition around it, even though there are definitions in Webster's and you know Oxford and places where you can go. It's just been such a it's been such a captive word that folks have taken over and redefined it in their own in their own ways. Uh, and most of the time in self-serving ways. So I had to just blank slate, you know, start all over again and recognize that in its very core, what we talked about earlier is that an experience is a, a human reaction, an emotional reaction to a moment. It's what you feel. And it could be measured into what you do next or what you think next or what you express next. And if those, if those are the very uh, definitions and then also reactions, then how how should that unfold welcome to the technobiotic podcast episode 7 join us on our journey of finding humanity among technology with your hosts laura araujo matt drew and shane carlson as well as our special guest brian solas Hello, welcome to Technobiotic Podcast. I'm Shane Carlson, one of your co-hosts. I'm joined today by my other co-hosts, Laura Rajo, Matt Drew. How are you guys doing? Man, Great. hunkering down. Shelter in place, buddy. <laughs> Shelter in place. You know, it's it's interesting to me that I'm sure most people in this world did not understand those three words and the context of those words until very recently, but we're all learning very quickly, aren't we? Yeah. 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 And... Uh, I don't know about you, but luckily I made a Costco run the week before all this came down. So uh, I, I, hopefully my, my small family of three is good on toilet paper for at least <laughs> the next four to six weeks. Because otherwise, man, I don't, we've already talked about it. We, and we've already got a crisis plan in place. Like, all right, what if we have to start using towels? Like, uh, do, we, do we have enough uh, laundry detergent so that if we get to that point? Because we aren't, we aren't going to put that in a bin and just like wait till it loads up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, growing up in Western Pennsylvania, you know, you hear about the concept of Yankee ingenuity and, and things of that nature. I also grew up hunting, fishing and things of that nature. And one of the things that was always the unspoken rule is at the end of a day hunting, you're in the restaurants and things with other hunters. If you see somebody with only one sock on, you don't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> right and that is quickly becoming the reality for the nation well for the yeah. world yeah uh, you know it, it, laura i think you, you had made a facebook post about how how you know enthusiastic charlie was about you know ensuring that a certain level of paper products existed in the household at any time and i chimed in because it's it, one of the things <laughs> where growing up we grew up with corner stores and things and i lived in a household where more often than not, you were yelling to have one of your siblings run to the corner store to buy a single <laughs> roll of toilet paper. As a result, as a you know, as I've grown, I want to make sure that that situation never happens in our household. So I typically keep at least two of the Costco-sized packages of toilet paper in the house at any given time. And anytime we go below a full single, 
uh, package of Costco toilet paper. You know, we go into a little bit of a panic and we make sure we go stock up. And, you know, same as you, Matt, uh, we had actually hit Costco a few weeks ago. And you know, my wife is one of the people who tries to be as prepared as possible at all times. And she, she has anxiety about, you know, not having enough things in the house to begin with. So she had done some things over the last couple months to make sure we had shelf stable food storage, extra water capacity, all of the things that on the prepper shows people like to make fun of and you know I, I always jokingly refer to her as a prepper and you know the last week has been a lot of smugness on her part that uh, that, that she has been prepared and such but uh, we, we're pretty well prepared here in our household we're going to limit social activities we're going to stay home we're going to cook at home I've been getting back into baking bread and Laura and I were talking about this earlier before we started recording it's amazing those of us who grew up in households where you had to prepare food thinking of, you know, what is the most amount of calories I can get out of every meal? How can I turn one meal into three meals or five meals? You know, things of that nature. So that all of that lifetime of training is kicking in. Potatoes. <laughs> You're not going to see all the fancy posts that Shane normally posts on Instagram, uh, you know, where I'm smoking fancy meat meals that take 12 hours to prep. And, you know, you know <laughs> last night we had what I refer to as pinche tacos, which is, uh, you know, <laughs> which is the hard shell with the cheese and the ground beef and the, you know, the romaine lettuce and the tomatoes and and the taco and sauce. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, joking about that. My wife had been joking. It's like, you know, I, I feel like we're eating like we did when we first got married, <laughs> where we'd go shop at Winco and stock up on, you know, a cart full of provisions to last us a month. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's you know, people are at that point. Well, it did, did you see the uh, the the people in Australia that bought, I, I forget what it is. It was like a lifetime supply of toilet paper accidentally. Cause they, yes. they, they were in like February. switching suppliers. Yeah. They were, they were switching suppliers on their, on their toilet on, I forget what it was, but they had the unit quantity wrong on their toilet paper order. And it was a different number per package. And yep. they just, they just kept the same number of packages, not realizing there was twice as much toilet paper in there. And so it's like, they've got this massive like game of Thrones, like, <laughs> toilet paper uh, uh, thrown sitting up in their living room and she's just like the queen of teepee yeah yeah I think what it was was it was they normally buy 48 rolls at a time in a package and somehow ordered a quantity of 48 cases of 48 rolls of toilet yeah. paper so it, something like three thousand australian dollars worth of toilet paper showed up oh at their house oh my gosh wow <laughs> well i remember I remember when I was growing up, we, we did not really buy things in bulk necessarily because we had plenty, we had plenty of storage in our house, but there wasn't really a, a fear, I guess, of running out of things. But at the same time, there was always this, like, you only use like a couple squares of toilet paper if you're peeing. And like, if you have to go number two, then like you can have a couple more squares, but like two squares was if you're going pee, <laughs> like if you use more than two squares, then like you are going to get in trouble. <laughs> and I'm, so, I'm out of compliance. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, and so then, you know, when I met Charlie and I saw, you know, how much toilet paper he used just, you know, on the regular, 
I, you know, I was so freaked out. I'm like, oh my God, Charlie, we don't, you know, we don't need to use that much toilet paper. And he's going to be mad that I'm talking about this, but it's fine. And <laughs> he signed on to this. And so, you know, yeah, we have, we totally have like six months worth of toilet paper at any given time. We have it stashed up in our, in our uh, upstairs, you know, we live in, we don't have an upstairs, but we have these like big storage areas yeah. in our little Manhattan Garage apartment. Lot. Yeah, and it's like it's the the uh, toilet paper and the paper towels and the tissues and like all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so we have been prepared for quite some time. And as as he's complaining, I've made sixty gallons of different vegetable soups that I've frozen in the in the freezer. So we're good. <laughs> we have five kids, and at this point, we only have three left in the house, and one of them's you know, in college, so he's only here part time typically. And so we're we're we've been used to making kind of large meals and we had been joking, you know, for the last six months as we've had less kids in the house that, you know, we still over make food. And so we've had a, we have a big full size freezer in the garage that we, that we put things in. And, you know, again, now my wife is feeling pretty smug about the fact that we have, you know, all these preparations and, and we're, we're ready to go. But it's, it, it's interesting. I, you know, one of the things that's been very interesting to me is somebody who loves to study complex systems and the way humans interact with complex systems and outside pressures and the, the whole concept of what, you know, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt does to people and how it drives their shadow behaviors is watching what people buy in the grocery stores, right? The TP panic was the one. Everyone's like, why are people buying TP? It's not like, you know, this causes them to, to crap themselves. You know, for me, it's like, I totally understand that behavior, right? People are looking at if I'm stuck in my house for weeks at a time, not going out, not being able to go buy things, you know, what is the hierarchy of needs in terms of of the household and what you what you're going to use and what level of panic are you going to hit when you run out right it's like you know people aren't going to panic if they can't get steak and eggs for breakfast they have a can of you know ravioli on the shelf but the minute they start looking at okay i'm down to my last five rolls of toilet paper what's the plan that's when that you know panics so i understand the behaviors behind that but the interesting thing and I, and I was going through the grocery store yesterday and as i said we've we've pretty much been well prepared for a few weeks now kind of monitoring things that are going on and we had gone out last week to get some different provisions and things. And so I watching the grocery store over the last week has been interesting. So the first couple of days, what people were buying compared to what they were buying yesterday when I went by to get a couple more things. I'm going in looking at, you know, the shelf stable stuff, the bags of flour, the other things that I know I can turn into 20 loaves of bread or, or other things like that. Just, you know, the, the, from my point of view, the practical stuff, watching other people walk around and just throw cases of water and do this and that and buy the eggs and any form of fresh protein they can find. And in the meantime, there's frozen bags of fish. The thing that was amazing to me, and I was talking to a friend on Facebook last night about this, is all of the frozen meals, like the pizzas and the banquet dinners and all those things, stocked full. Everything's there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But everything else, gone. Yeah. Well, I, I went in uh, a couple of nights ago. Uh, because when and this is this is right after the video of the people in Italy uh, was released. Did you see that where they're like, okay, send send a video to yourself ten days ago? Yes. And man, that was an eye opener. It's just like the the underlying theme there was we weren't ready for this. We underestimated what the impact of this was was going to be. So don't yeah. be an idiot. You know, get ready for it. And it's just like, oh shit, um, I'm gonna go grocery shopping. 
So I went grocery shopping at 11 o'clock on Sunday because it was just like, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not a panic type dude, but at the same time, I'm looking around the kitchen and I'm thinking, you know what? There are a few things that, you know, I'm not going to hoard. And, and actually I was in a couple of situations where there were maybe two or three of something left on the shelves. And instead of taking all of them, which, which it seems like, unfortunately has become the trend lately. It's like, I'm just going to take all of the stuff. I'm going to take every 16 ounce box of sugar and bring that home. Right. So I go to the grocery store. There isn't a banana in the place. There's no bread. There's no bleach. Actually, it's the four Bs. It's weird. I'm just thinking about this as I'm saying it. Um, frozen broccoli, gone. Bread, bleach, bananas. All like not a single one in the entire place. But you go over to the beer and wine section, jam packed. It's like it, it's fully stocked. Uh, yep. And and you're looking around thinking, all right, what is the mentality of the people coming through here? You know, and same thing. You go into the frozen food section and. Uh, exactly that. Like it's, it's completely stocked. It's like no one's even been down that aisle. Well, I do wonder if, um, like, so for example, we didn't really, we didn't buy any frozen meals. I made an effort to try to prepare meals that were healthy and, and a lot of vegetables, like nutrient dense foods, but also things that were not necessarily prepackaged and didn't have a whole shit ton of MSG and all of these other stuff things that we don't really necessarily know. I don't know if that is, I mean, maybe maybe some people are not thinking that way, but I have to believe that there are a good amount of people who are thinking that way that, you know, they're they're going back to simplicity as we talked about Shane. Um, but at the same time, they are, you know, they're trying to be cognizant of what they're consuming because our wellness is, that's that's all we have right now. I was mentioning on Facebook or Twitter, actually, the other day that the amount of industries that are going to be spawned as a result of what's happening today over the next couple of years, I mean, I mean, between studying the behaviors that have happened, looking at buying patterns, what were people buying? What were people stockpiling? What were people buying after the first wave? of things disappeared from the store shelves. What was the next thing they went to after their first hierarchy of needs were satisfied? Laura and I, you were talking about this earlier, is you couldn't find flour anywhere. And I think the same thing when I went into the grocery store, the traditional paper five pound sacks of flour, 10 pound sacks of flour were all gone, but gold meal had gone to a new packaging, writing a different format of packaging with the flat plastic bags that pack and ship much easier and are less likely to leak and things much like the brown sugar and things have been in for years. And there were stacks of those there because people didn't look at them and recognize them as the flour that they needed, right? At that base level somewhere in their brain, they didn't see that as the same thing. So, you know, I'd picked up two of those earlier in the week and they still had more when I went back yesterday. So I grabbed a couple more because, you know, suddenly I'm back into baking bread and doing other things. It's starting some sourdough even this week as well. It's very interesting to me to, to look at what outside influences do to complex systems. And when you introduce a level of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the way that translates into people's lizard brains of what's important and what's not important. And I really think you're going to see a lot of people reevaluating what's important, what's essential, what's critical, and not. And, you know, I, I feel for a lot of businesses that as we go through these shelter-in-place activities, as we go through these literal shutdowns of communities to keep this virus from spreading, what that's doing to people and their behaviors, and especially to the, the, the hospitality 
hospitality industry, the travel industry, local restaurants, who typically operate off very thin margins as it is, being forced to shut down their dining rooms and go to takeout and delivery only, and bars themselves, who are literally the social gathering places, the places, you know, restaurants and bars are where we go to celebrate our life milestone. It's where yeah. we go to to connect with our friends and our family. Laura and Charlie, you guys live in New York City. Anytime one of us shows up to New York City, it's, it's a big thing. It's like, hey, where are we going to go eat? What are we going to do? Let's get together. It's a huge part of our social fabric. Or in general, in New York City, if you want to do anything at all, you have to, you know, yeah. you, you go and get a drink or you go and have a meal or a snack or something. The life is, you know, the, the things that are closed right now. So it's very interesting. Yeah, and I saw I saw there's the live feed uh, that shows Times Square, and you know it was it was showing Times Square last night, and there was there was nobody, there was not. I I sat there and watched for a couple minutes. I didn't see a single person walk through the frame, and it was it was the entire square. It wasn't just a portion of it. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's really interesting to see like how how because I mean we're also talking about potentially this is the school year's over now. You know, because we're we're here in Missoula, it's spring break. We, uh, yesterday was the first day of spring break, and and schools canceled next week as well, for now. But the expectation is there are going to be further cancellations, and that's the question: is like, are are we seeing the end of the school year this year now already? And you know, looking beyond that. What is the long-term impact going to be? Exactly, right? Are, are we going to evaluate our social models? Are we going to evaluate the ways in which we do business? Are we going to reevaluate yeah, the ways yeah. in which we learn and which we teach? And I think we're already starting to see companies be impacted by that. Uh, you know, I work for a large software technology-based company, and a good portion of us work from home. We're used to doing remote meetings. We're used to doing remote facilitation. But the rest of our company has had to shift in that mode. You know, our company company is headquartered in Santa Clara, California, one of the hotspots. And they're literally in a shelter in place. You're not allowed to go if you're a non-essential business to your workplace. You have to be at home. And now you have to be productive to be at home. So we are going to see models and shifts in the ways of working, the work patterns, the way in which expectations around how work is delivered and how people are measured around productivity are going to change and shift as a part of that. So it's a very interesting impact we're going to see on our social fabric and our social structures and how that impacts our work life, our home life, our family life, uh, all of that. And now you have to spend time with your significant other. (laughs) No. How many divorces this year? <laughs> you, you know what was funny is that talking about secondary be- buying behaviors is when toilet paper ran out, the second thing to disappear off of Amazon very quickly was bidets. Condoms. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a show. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Oh. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that's a good point in time to break and uh, say, hey, we've got a great interview in store for you. We actually recorded this a couple days ago, but uh, we're going to go ahead and roll into our interview. And we have our guest today, Mr. Brian Solis. Brian is a globally recognized independent digital analyst and anthropologist. He's also an award-winning author, prominent blogger, writer, and a renowned keynote speaker. But more than that, he's a pretty awesome human. Uh, I've had the opportunity to to read the majority of his books over the years here as he's produced them and uh, have experienced them live and uh, even met him, I think, once or twice over the years as well. So, Brian, welcome. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, lovely introduction. Brian, no offense, man. You sound like a slacker. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me tell you, it, it is uh, the imposter syndrome is real. I'll, t- I'll give you that much. I, I will tell you, the imposter syndrome in drives every successful person I've ever met, except for the narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> that is a conversation in of itself. It, it is it. entirely, especially given current world events. But we will avoid that uh, topic today because we've got a lot of other fun stuff. Oh to talk yes, because then we'd have to add uh, the descriptor of malignant to that one. Ooh, Ooh I like Ooh. that though. I think that's kind of cool. It is. It is. So moving on from current events and uh, (laughs) the virus apocalypse as we're now experiencing it, Brian, as I've followed you over the years, a couple things have really kind of stuck out for me in terms of the way you approach the kind of the digital transformation in the technology world in general. And I think you were one of the earliest folks that I remember talking about the concept of customer experience and design driving the majority of companies that are going to be successful as they move into the future. And if you could just take a moment, you know, kind of taking us back through your thinking on this, you were talking about this, I would say years before anyone really saw the importance of experience and design in successful brands. And tell us how you kind of came to that and how that's kind of changed your thinking over the last five or 10 years as you've been talking about this. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. The problem in my work is that when you live on the left side of the bell curve, the ideas as you have them seem absolutely normal. And there's a race to get it out before you lose the idea or the chance to express that idea. And then also uh, before someone else takes it and runs with it. Uh, And what I've been guilty of doing uh, over and over again, it seems, is having books that have been just too early uh, to hit the mainstream. Uh, So X uh, and the book before it, What's the Future, a.k.a. WTF, explored the concept of experience design from a customer experience standpoint. But X went deeper uh, into the concept, into exploring literal experience design. So experience as an emotion, uh, because that's what it is. It's an emotional reaction to a moment. And you can apply it to CX, you can apply it to movies, you can apply it to music, you can apply it to uh, retail, in-store physical design, the, the concept of experience, architecture, experience design in, in the book X really took it to a much more substantial level. And that book came out, I think, four years ago. And I wish I released it now. Uh, it's it's interesting how much a date affects sort of the impact of a potential book. The, the people who love it are the people who read it or who go, who go and proactively find it. Uh, but for the most part, because it has an older date, people are sort of looking, well, what's newer? There's got to be something wrong with it it's, if it's that old. Uh, and the little secret that I have is any book I write is not dated it's you, you could you could pick it up anytime uh and it, it it should hopefully apply but yeah books don't have freshness dates i, I literally on my bookshelf behind me i've got a, i've got a shop theory book from henry ford from the early 1900s i've got a production handbook from the 1920s and it's amazing to me that i can pick those books up turn to a page and find a way to do a mental model to current events and current thinking exactly 
I would definitely say, especially with your books and, and X, especially X was probably one of my favorite of the books you've, you've written to date for a couple of reasons is that concept of linking design to experience and successful products. And additionally, the concept of experience architecture. And, and for me, this is something I spend a lot of time talking to people about, you know, and have been for the last five or 10 years is experience is everything. There are two things that only your consumers of your products and services can, can give you. You can't tell someone the quality of something you're providing to them. Only they can tell you what the quality is based off how they experience it. And value is the other side of that. They're the only ones who can tell you what what value they're getting for the investment they're making in your products. And so often we try and tell people something's quality when we sell it, but they're the ones who determine whether it's quality or not. And I, I think the concept of that experience architecture for me was it was a turning point in I think how a lot of people started looking at things. And as you said, it was a little early for folks, but I'm having conversations just you know to make you aware that uh, I'm having conversations every day and about every third conversation, the concept of experience architecture comes into that conversation. That's fantastic to hear. Uh, and it, I was I was talking to my publisher about actually give, giving it a freshen state of just updating it so that it could get a, a 2020 date so that we could relaunch it because I think it's actually more applicable today. More people will get it today than, you know, when it when it first came out. And I don't know where we're going to go with that. Uh, in fact, uh, if it doesn't happen, then I'm ready to go into the next book, which would sort of be an extension of X. But it would require that people read X first. So when you're talking about kind of going back and giving it a new freshness date and and understanding that, I mean, the concept obviously is evergreen because at the end of the day, it's all about uh, user experience and and the importance of that will never wane. In fact, it's it's only ever going to become more important, but how it's executed specifically is going to be changed and sort of the platforms that are used in order to help express are going to change. How much of your book if you were to if you were to put it in kind of a percentage understanding obviously that 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 it's very conceptual in terms of of specific unique details how much has changed of of that initial release and how for those who are listening i i don't want this in any way shape or form to come across as a commercial for the book you know when this is uh anytime i write a book it's because it, it at that moment that's my zeitgeist and i have to get it out uh, in 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 some way, shape, or form, and experience uh, is a word that then and more so now is part of everyday corporate vernacular. If you look at any technology vendor, ranging from SAP, Salesforce, uh, Adobe, everybody is talking about experience. And in fact, in Adobe's case, they name their products uh, the Experience Cloud. The thing about that is what we fail to do is to step back and explore the humanity of experience. Therefore, it then becomes more aligned with technology enablement, right? So we break it down into touch points. We break it down into messages. We break it down to right time, right place, right platform. We break it down into personalization. Uh, We link it to real-time data and predictive analytics. Look, all important things, but again, what we what we miss is sort of the concept of what is an experience the thing that we we forget and it's the experience that i wanted to go through and that pun was intended which was look i'll just strip it down to the basics when i went to write a book about experience design 
one of the things that you should know is what does experience mean? And so I spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to come to a common definition around it, even though there are definitions in Webster's and you know Oxford and places where you can go. It's just been such a it's been such a captive word that folks have taken over and redefined it in their own in their own ways uh, and most of the time in self-serving ways. So I had to just blank slate, you know, start all over again and recognize that in its very core, what we talked about earlier is that an experience is a a human reaction, an emotional reaction to a moment. It's what you feel. And it could be measured into what you do next or what you think next or what you express next. And if those those are the very uh, definitions and then also reactions, then how how should that unfold uh, and no no matter what we say about customer centricity or delight you know delivering a delightful experience or you know how we measure it in nps if we're not going to tackle what someone what someone's intent is or their aspiration is or their desired outcome is you know, that's a key human moment that experience design misses uh, and so then i I've, I've had to go and study then how, how are the best in the world thinking about experiences outside of every conversation around customer experience, for example, or employee experience or whatever, whatever it is at the moment. And I, I spent time with a Pixar storyboard artist. I spent time with Disney park engineers uh, and architects. I looked at all anyone who works in experience design at an emotional level to reverse engineer the that art and science into then this concept of experience architecture, which would later be called uh, experience design by the industry. And that to me is where, just a long story short, uh, where I then had to put the book's concept into practice and stop the production of the book uh, ended up actually rewriting a lot of it after going through the storyboard uh, process and then realizing that you can't launch a book about experience design without the book being an experience in of itself. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a something I had started experimenting with with WTF, but it was just more of a hunch. This time it was a science. And I spent time studying, you know, in the book I talk about how mobile design has really rewired uh, brains uh, in how they read, how they think, how they process information, how they share information. And so that I then studied the best apps in in the business, their UI, their UX strategies, took those principles. Those principles ended up becoming part of the book uh, as part of experience design and then designed the book to be an analog app. And this is how important the potential of experience design can be is I realized that why does it have to be a book? When we think about a book, we think about just a, a traditional construct of table of contents, you know, chapter structure supported by paragraphs, maybe some art, you know, you have bibliography and references at the end, whatever it is. It turns out that when you study how someone processes information via mobile screen and you try to apply those insights to paper, the whole game is different. If you're going to design a book to be experiential, then the whole intention changes. I learned all kinds of things. Like we didn't need a table of contents. In fact, the table of contents in that book reflects a home screen on your phone uh, that we could batch together chapters instead of making them linear left to right. So you could you could batch whatever chapters you want to read in whatever format and also changed how I write. It also changed the concept of a paragraph versus what is what's how could I communicate an entire paragraph visually? 
And so that, uh, and look, I could have kept going with the book, but at some point, you know, publishers like, we, we going or not? <laughs> so, yeah, they're weird about deadlines, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So I, I just, you know, kind of rattled all that out there just to say like, well, I, the, the potential for how we think about experience is limitless. Uh, and that, and that comes down to businesses, customer journeys, product design, you name it. Everything can be reimagined. It's interesting to talk about experiences. I like the fact that you went through the journey of defining what an experience was, because I think you're right. There's a lot of interpretation around what experiences are. And uh, there's, a, there's a power, and this is something we've been talking about on the podcast in a couple different episodes with a couple different folks, is the, the power of shared experiences. And, and that's where you have that virility. That's where you have that things changing and you know, products succeeding, even though they may not be the best designed products in the world, but there's a level of shared experience around them that drives something in our culture, something in our psyche that makes us want to be a part of those experiences. In your research on experiences and things like that, you know, did you touch on shared experience and, and that virility? I know in some of the some of the book in X specifically, you talked a little bit about that. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, what, you know, what did you find when you dug into that? The, the book before it was really about that concept, which was an experience is going to be shared. Uh, so l- let me let me go back a, a, a step. An experience is not only something you feel, but it's something that whether it's bad or good, you tend to remember. So it, it converts into a memory. But more so, there's a, a profound uh, desire, whether it's positive or negative, to share it whether you share it with people around you, or you write a review on Yelp or Amazon, uh, you, you publish it on Twitter, whatever it is. So th- that idea of impressions, so the experience uh, leads to expressions, the shared experience, and the collective of those shared experiences, essentially what I argued in WTF become the brand. And in a connected society, those shared experiences shouldn't be left to chance, that we have to understand what they are today and what they're not, and then what they should be. Of course, WTF is a much more simplistic approach to the conversation where we just we talk about it in terms of the customer journey and critical touch points and explicitly as the mobile was becoming the, uh, the, the game changer uh, and what those experiences could look like. But the concept then was just sort of broken down into four moments of truth, just to sort of simplify the conversation, which was the zero moment of truth, which is something that Google owns. And that is the moment where you go to say, for example, begin your search or your research, uh, whether that's in Google or YouTube, you know, whatever your hub is, right? So for many people, for example, that first moment of truth is Amazon, where they use the search bar uh, to explore what what's available. Definitely not toilet paper or uh, sanitizer <laughs> these days. Uh, and the second moment, <laughs> Uh, the first moment, so goes zero moment of truth, the first moment of truth, which is uh, the minute you find what you're looking for, and then you start to narrow down the decision. The second moment of truth is when you actually use what it is you purchased. And then I came up with what I called the ultimate moment of truth, which was what that was the moment that you expressed your experience. Uh, and the key point for this was that the zero first and second moments of truth were linear. The ultimate moment of truth was dynamic, but also connected the dots between the rest. So for example, if you search for something, 
what do you find? In most cases, brands are sort of failing. Uh, you know, they, they sort of focus on SEO, SEM. But what people are looking for, the shared experiences of human beings, peers. What, what did a peer like me think? And what was their experience like? And it's usually in specific contexts. Like if you're shopping for a car, what does the trunk look like as, uh, for skiers? Uh, you know, and believe it or not, there's content and reviews out there for those exact instances. Uh, and so my point was that the ultimate moment of truth, once it's shared, becomes the next person's zero moment of truth. And that's really why we wanted to help businesses define not only what the experience should be, but how should it be expressed so that there's no surprises? And then also, where should that experience be expressed? And how do you connect the dots to the zero moment of truth? Because what, at the end of the day, if you're not part of the search results, then you're not part of the the decision. And if you're not part of the decision, well, then you know, that doesn't have a, a good outcome. And so you want to be the mentally available brand or solution or service in the way that people search, where they search and what they're looking for. Very interesting, Brian. Um, so I know that you've written a lot of books and uh, Charlie's a big fan of all of them. <laughs> but as someone who is coming at this transformation from a little bit more human side of things, I'm curious at your thoughts on expanding beyond the book platform. You're talking a lot about this ultimate moment of truth, this moment where everything kind of just comes together and therefore you're able to share the beginning path, the beginning journey once again with someone else so that they can empathize with the journey that you've been taking. Do you have anything in the works or have you thought about allowing for these books to become a more live experience? I know with MAPS, we're talking a lot about working beyond this book that we're working on, the practice, but allowing for the practice to be embedded also in these in these workshops and online programs. I would love to hear, you know, are you are you working on anything like that? What are your thoughts on something like that? You know, do you think that's a bunch of woo-woo nonsense or where are you at? <laughs> <laughs> woo-woo nonsense should be the, the, next, the next big hashtag. I uh, agree. <laughs> it'll, it'll go out when we promote the podcast. Excellent, episode. excellent. Uh, you know, it's a painful question to try to answer because every, especially X uh, and WTF, uh, well, and and out actually LifeScale, uh, they've they've all been converted into workshops. Mm. Uh, and LifeScale actually the most complete. There's it's actually a complete workshop ready to go, a certification program for coaches ready to go on that front. And I just haven't been able to to do it because my world, since I live in the left side of the bell curve, it's sensitive to any market disruptions. So I have to jump from thing to thing in order to pay my bills. And every time something has, has, has changed and I haven't been able to get back to launch it. LifeScale might be the first one that I, I get to because I have a partner and someone who, who really wants to see it, well, especially since it's already created, but uh, drive it as, as, a, as its own entity. The next book, uh, if, it, if, it, if it goes the way I think it's going to go, it will force me to bring back to life uh, X uh, in that regard uh, and hopefully develop something 
for for the new book uh, in that regard as well. But then again, it's going to have to be something that I hand to someone else because it's just not the nature, unfortunately, of 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 my work and research and and speaking and and what have you, to be able to dedicate what you know the time and resources necessary to stick with something for a long time. And like that's for better or for worse. I wonder sometimes where where I would be if I just stuck with some of these ideas that I helped champion and kind of saw them through. To you know, usually as they go along the bell curve, they become more and more lucrative. Yeah, the the, the attention you can have when you live on the left side of that bell curve to see those things through down to the point where the rest of the world catches up to your way of thinking. I've had a few friends that have attempted to do that and they go pretty much insane by the end of it because they're already trying to think five steps ahead of everybody else. And by the time people catch on, as you said, your books come a little bit early. The ones that have been successful have done exactly what you're talking about. They hand that off to someone who's very good at that part of it and let them run plays with it while you're moving on to the next thing. So I think I think you're onto something there. Well, onto something or incredibly foolish. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> well, what's that? What's that saying in, in, in Silicon Valley? That uh, well, any any conversation about innovations, that great ideas and uh, bad ideas sound equally ridiculous at the beginning. So, kind of, kind of uh, uh, branching off of that vein a little bit. In a past life, in my professional history, I was director of marketing for a hospitality company in Las Vegas, and I was in that position at a time where they were looking at international expansion and more specifically on the hospitality side as opposed to the gaming side. And one of the tools that I was working on at the time in order to help facilitate that growth and and bring more people over to the brand portfolio was what could be best described as kind of an experiential booking engine because this was at a time when when kayak and and you know all these third-party OTAs uh, were really uh, getting huge market share of all of the the travel bookings and so this was in a way uh, really sort of a direct competitor to all of those but but in a brand specific setting and one of the challenges is I sat down with my UX team, and my developers, and we started talking about uh, this experiential booking engine from a conceptual perspective. One of the things, and this is this is a decade ago, and even back then, one of the challenges was as we started talking about potential consumer touch points, what you realize is there really are no clear, mutually exclusive consumer touch points. It's like there, there's a convergence happening wherein you have to take into account your average user doesn't necessarily have a specific activity profile anymore. And you kind of have to attack that, that potential consumer from a lot of different perspectives. And having not really been a part of any of that since I left that company, I'm really curious on your perspective specific to that convergence and how much of a role that plays in UX on the design side and what the expectations are from a consumer's perspective. Oh, well, this one will take three seconds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, always with the easy questions. I like to ask five questions in one sentence. My bad. <laughs> I don't know. I so Hopefully this answers your question. I don't know if um, if I got it all, but two or three years ago, I might have answered this much more conceptually. Now you could be very specific. What, ha- what, what drives, so what drove the design of the book wasn't just to be experiential. It was it, the reality that 
if you look at a high school teenager uh, or or younger, uh, they have to still read books and they're still given paperwork as part of their uh, th- their learning experience. Yet, science will pr- will prove that their brain struggles to stay in in the zone, going left to right top to bottom in a Z formation as they read a page and then turn the page uh, because their brain is literally wired. And, and I say literally not to be trendy, but just literally wired to be more dynamic based on their experience with processing information on their phones and iPads. Uh, and so when someone is trying to learn in that old analog or legacy format, their brain is struggling. Uh, and as their brain struggles, it becomes easy to procrastinate or it opens you to distractions. And so this could be easily misdiagnosed as ADHD, for example. I bet you at some point here in the, in, on the horizon, we're going to see uh, research that shows a bunch of, uh, of people are unnecessarily on medication uh, when all it was was, an, it was a design issue. And that they were forced. Uh, the only reason that they were able to go through is because they were forced to do so uh, in order to learn and, and move on to the next class or what have you. So I say that because uh, once, if if you if that becomes your premise, if you know that, then your solution is innovative because now you have to solve for a different problem that you didn't see. So if we want to talk about the convergence, then we have to add in a few things that then, for example, uh, are in play today. Voice. Voice is a big deal. Um, I have, uh, a, she's now four. Uh, when she was three, uh, my, my daughter, I would, I have a, a TV room outside of my office at home and I would hear her over and over say, Mickey Mouse Club, Mickey Mouse Club, Mickey Mouse Club. I was like, well, what's, what's, what's going on with the Mickey Mouse Club? So I'd go outside uh, and she was talking into her toy remote trying to change the channel. Uh, and uh, <laughs> It, she's you know she's, she's that's what she knows wow she, she's also ahead of the curve because now you can do that yeah. <laughs> you can absolutely do that and and she you know we have xfinity here so that's where she learned it uh, and in xfinity ironically is on a remote control brick that has on average and most remotes have this on average 70 buttons on them and I talk about this conceptual design flaw in uh, or th- parking signs, for example, uh, or airline tickets, boarding passes. Uh, th- these these are all things that every every aspect of our life is still rooted in these design principles. So when we talk about convergence, you're still you're still building upon the platforms of how they are. We're just trying to make them work together better. But if you were to redesign something from today's expectations to to how your brain fires today, for example, uh, it would be, convergence would be different, right? Most websites today are still rooted in design principles from 1995. And and that's not to be insulting, it's just reality. Uh, And we've iterated on it. Like, so when we got the mobile device, uh, we, the the first two most potent techniques for mobile design were adaptive and responsive design. Uh, and essentially it was taking existing constructs and making them work on smaller screens. We didn't take them a moment to say, what could this on a native platform like this, what would, what would be different? Uh, and so this is why things like Tinder are mind blowing. Oh, what do you mean like swipe left, swipe, swipe right? That's all I have to do. Or, you know, you get, it led to applications like TikTok or Instagram or Vine. They, they, they were invented for the medium. Uh, and then 
what we have today is all of these, you know, so, so let's look at Alexa uh, or Google Home. Uh, you have these voice platforms then that are trying to connect the dots to backends that are just not voice activated, that are not intuitive, that are not simplified. And the data that they connect to is across multiple silos of CRM and ERP data that don't, that don't talk to each other. So it's a long way of saying that none of this is going to be native. Uh, until we start to design for it to be native. And this is where it becomes complicated uh, and why there's so much disruption in traditional industries is because no one's thinking at the experiential architectural level. And if they are, they're not connected to the decision makers that bring the back end together because that's where it's going to work. And so in the meantime, this is, this is why, for example, I, I work with a company, full disclosure, called Era Technology that has a virtual, well, just to say it simply, a virtualization, a virtualization layer powered by um, AI and machine learning that sits above uh, ERP systems to then essentially crawl the data that's there in the same way that Google crawls all the websites around the web. They don't they don't look at all the websites, they virtualize the website so that you can find instances quickly. Uh, so that way you can connect the back end for uh, automated, you know, cognitive automation as it's called. So that it's that type of thinking that an experienced architect would walk into and say, okay, I see the possibility of that technology. Now we could bring to life this converged experience that's going to deliver X, Y, and Z, right? So you have to have the the imagination, but also the, the, the ability to connect all the dots, especially in the back end, to be able to deliver that in a native uh, native format. So hopefully that addresses the question. Brian, in, in LifeScale, you talked quite a bit about the concept of multitasking, kind of literally driving us mad and uh, being very corrosive in our lives and, and our, our mental well-being. And mental well-being is something that we've been talking about a lot on this podcast. We've had some great conversations with uh, behavioral neuroscientists about you know what our brains are actually doing when we're getting these dopamine hits from these uh, likes, these notifications, these things. Talk to us a little bit about why you wrote LifeScale, because it was a, bit, a little bit of a departure from some of your previous works. And, and I think it's, to me, it seems very on point with some of the messaging and where you're going with a lot of your messaging today. LifeScale, uh, you know, earlier when we talked about sort of being on the left side of the bell curve, uh, and sometimes that's not always a good thing. LifeScale was one of those circumstances that actually took took value away from my platform initially. Um, and I'll explain that. Uh, it's now starting to come back around, thankfully, but it's not a book that was on my roadmap. I didn't didn't set out to write about life scale. It just sort of came came to be from a, a, a variety of circumstances that were happening you know, around the 2015 time, uh, going through the 2016 election was that, you know, sometime around 2015, I just, as I was starting to think about the follow-up to X, I started to write a book proposal. Uh, and I, I, this is going to sound really weird, but it would have, that would have been my eighth book. Uh, and technically I don't have to write a book proposal anymore. I, I stick with it with my tried and true publisher and we've done a lot of great things together. So it's just a matter of just sort of expressing the idea. But I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, try to write a proposal so that I can use it as sort of a force mechanism to to flush out the idea. Because I, I, I had already started to notice that the ability to crystallize something that once came, I don't want to say easily, but just, you know, it was just a matter of, of, of dedicating the time and energy to, you know, to do it, you, you know, you would do it. Uh, but even then I couldn't do it. And 
the proposal would it would it would be broken it wouldn't come across as clear as i'd wanted to i ended up hiring a developmental editor to help me kind of flesh it out um, she would come back with the same things you know when we talked it didn't you know that seemed clear but I, i'm not reading that anyway long story short uh i i just pressed pause on the subject you know thought it was maybe writer's block at the time i was also in knee deep in writing you know good old-fashioned research reports on the stuff that i was doing and uh, then started to notice patterns on that writing as well, trying to write articles as well. Just the, the ability to focus was not what it used to be. Uh, and it's something that it's, you're not really, you, you don't really notice as much until you're challenged and, or your back's against the wall. And my, and in that case, a book is, is a big, is a big reason. It's a big driver for my speaking business. Uh, so my back was against the wall. Uh, and then at the same time, I also started noticing very interesting things play out uh, leading up to the election, which uh, was around the rise of fake news, the rise of bots, at least at a at a mainstream level. I was asked to give a, a keynote at South by Southwest and also uh, Social Media World, uh, and these are these are both with like multi thousand people audiences. And so I took I took I took the opportunity to to take that experience and those insights to turn it into a presentation that I felt would engage, you know, these, this, this many smart people, uh, in different contexts. And to what I ended up finding in my research was that attention spans were intentionally manipulated by social media companies and games and apps because that's how they compete. And the techniques that I learned of how that was done, you know, so things like persuasive design, variable intermittent rewards. Uh, there's just a lot of things that we could geek out on at a later time, but they're actually very uh, effective techniques that have roots in things like gambling, uh, slot machine design. Uh, and they're essentially designed to be addictive in nature, uh, which is how which is how they they monetize. Uh, the more attention they have, the more that they can monetize. And then the more things become more sophisticated, like AI and machine learning, the more they can learn about your behaviors and your expectations and sort of anticipate how to manipulate that attention over time. And in the same regard, it was the same sort of design techniques that were going into fake news. Why did it look so believable? Why, why were you so ready to, to believe it? And then more importantly, triggered to share it and... So a lot of the same sort of things were going into that, uh, the design of, of fake news. So uh, I gave a presentation on my findings of uh, how it worked, what was happening behind the scenes. Uh, at the same time, I was able to uh, align with someone who was much smarter on the subject. His name is Tristan Harris, and he's actually one of the engineers who uh, invented a lot of these capabilities uh, and also became the whistleblower for it. Uh, and... That presentation became sort of this th therapy for me to say, look, I didn't, I realized I didn't have, I have a problem, but now I know what the problem is. I was a victim to all these things. I just didn't realize it. And once I gave those presentations, everybody felt like, hey, that's great. And by the way, they're online if, if you want to watch them, especially the South by Southwest, uh, South by Southwest one is for sure in its entirety. So people would basically say, great. Uh, so what do we do about it? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, wow. That's uh I didn't I didn't get I didn't get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, we we'll, we'll we'll probably spend a whole episode or five on dark patterns in programming and how companies are using our own natural tendencies to to literally prey on us without us realizing it and giving us dopamine hits along the way to make us feel good about it. 
Oh yeah, there's six different chemicals that are stoked, and and if you think about the math behind the 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 combinations of those chemicals, uh, essentially it does what drugs do. For example, you, your body starts to crave those elixirs, and then you start to do the things more that give you those micro those micro hits essentially, uh, and the and as those chemicals fire in your body, they start to all, that's, that's literally what's happening in the rewiring of your brain is that you're essentially codifying, uh, how you think, uh, that you, you wire yourself for distractions. Uh, and you, some of the, some of the easiest things you'd see it in terms of the number of browsers you have open or the number of times you reach for your phone without, you know, without, without thinking about it. And so the year, the year after that, uh, South by Southwest gave me the stage again to talk about what would be what would have been be, uh, life scale, or actually what became life scale, which was uh, once you know what the problem is, uh, there's certainly a ton of different approaches to the solution, which is you know delete apps, don't use your phone as much, go out for a walk, go to digital detox, turn off your notifications, get the Calm app or Headspace. Uh, a lot of a lot of these a lot of these uh, things that sound really good and and are in their own way really good but they don't necessarily get past the symptoms uh, and that was when i had to spend more time understanding than how how to solve the problem and since a lot of it was mimicking traditional addiction patterns then we had or i just had to look at then how are addictions treated and then how could i borrow from those new mental models to deal with uh, digital addiction. And it turns out, you know, just to, I, I want to just spend a minute here. It turns out that it isn't just about addiction and rewiring your brain and being distracted. Actually, one of the things that's really bad about this and why the 2016 election was so profound uh, and why it still continues to this day is that what happens is you're not just rewiring brains, you're rewiring belief systems. Uh, you're either strengthening them or you're radicalizing them. Uh, and what becomes really crazy is that you don't know it. So your value systems are completely haywired. Uh, your your belief systems are completely enclosed. It's why everything is so polarizing today. Everybody believes that they're absolutely right because everything you see online tells you so. Uh, and that's one of the crazy things about like there's twenty. I can't even remember like twenty six different cognitive biases that were that are constantly stoked in all of this. Uh, and when your value system starts to shift as you become more and more digital, right? So for example, uh, an easy, just an easy example to share is Instagram. Every time you open Instagram, you subconsciously feel uh, greater anxiety because it becomes a comparative economy where you're constantly looking at the way people look, where people are going, uh, how people live their life and comparing it to yours. And over time, you start to feel, uh, you start to have self-esteem issues. You start to feel anxious. You start to, you, you start to feel all these things, whether you, you realize it or not. And that adds up over time. So you either do something that helps put you on a path towards that trajectory that your friends are living or, or your idols are living, uh, or you bury yourself more and more and more, detach more and more. And what what's really important to understand is that your value systems start to move in 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 directions that you may or may not realize. And so, for example, I use myself. I, I use LifeScale, the, the journey uh, on myself. 
I had I had learned it was and it was in many ways gross uh, how much my value system has changed from living the digital lifestyle uh, and succumbing to a lot of the attention hacks and tricks and uh, the belief systems that it gives you uh, it, it gives yourself view your self worth uh, the things you do to kind of give you that false sense of validation and meaning uh, and essentially your this is the decisions you make in re, in the real world are are based on that new value system and so I was making terrible decisions in my life that had incredible ramifications that I wouldn't even realize for for time you know until later uh, and so the book became a real human solution to finding your way in a digital world and what was a big premise for me was I didn't want to say all right just turn everything off I I'm a, I live on the left side of the bell curve I have to live with technology so the premise then became how do you live a life that isn't going back to where it was but that's going to be exponentially greater in unison so that I'm taking control uh, and then using technology the way I need to use it to hit my goals. And it's an ongoing journey. It doesn't end once you finish the book, which is why I had to make the book a beautiful and fun and uplifting experience because yeah. I still take it with me everywhere I go. That, that, that's amazing. And, and I'm glad you took a moment to, to share with us kind of your personal journey with that. And Brian, I know you know, we're coming up on kind of a, our end of our time here. And I know each of us could probably come up with another hundred questions for you. And we could spend the next you know seven, eight hours talking about this stuff. But I do appreciate the time you were able to give to us today. If people were uh, wanting to find out more about your books and uh, what you're doing in the world and where they can find you, what's the best place to, to track you down in the digital world? Uh BrianSolis.com, Brian at BrianSolis.com, or at Brian Solis everywhere. And I'm sure all the other Brian Solis's out there are upset with me, but uh, it was, like I said, left side of the bell curve. I had to do it. But that's an easy way, uh, an, an easy way to reach reach me on, on your platform of choice. So I look forward to hearing from you. Perfect. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to share uh, share my experiences. Yeah, and, and, and if thank you're you. up for it, uh, we'd love to have you back at some point in the future to delve into you know some of these topics, especially the dark patterns and, and other things. So, But thank you again for your time today. Sure, I would, uh, I would love it. And thank you very much for your time. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time. Technobiotic.